Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Beth. You know, that's really not fair. <laughs> I want you to know that. Uh, thank you, Doug. Thanks for everybody who had a part of this and everyone who kept it a secret from me, okay? Uh, actually, the anniversary is on December 4th, so I thought I might have an opportunity to prepare for that. And I uh, wasn't prepared for this. If I'd known it was coming, I would have dressed better. I would have... <laughs> I probably wouldn't have prepared a sermon. <laughs> Taking a little time off this week. But uh, on uh, behalf of Susan and me, and thank you so much. Uh, no words to express how grateful we are and how honored we are. And um, just amazed by God's goodness and grace and amazed that 30 years has gone by. And I've told you before, I am grateful that you had faith back then. You were here to call a 15-year-old pastor. I appreciate that. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the slides just brought back a flood of memories and uh, just deep joy. God is so faithful. Amen? Amen. And what a good and wonderful God. And it is a true privilege to continue to serve you. Um, I count it such an honor. I cannot imagine a pastor who's uh, received so much uh, encouragement and so little, uh, truly little discouragement, but just the blessing of uh, a people who love God. And I'm very, very grateful. And I have to say to that uh, beautiful uh, Blonde girl you saw in the pictures by my side, who's still that beautiful, beautiful lady, my wife, that uh, I would not uh, possibly have been able to uh, walk this journey without her. She is uh, the, uh, the great gift of Christ in my life. I'm so thankful for her. And, uh, Well, thank you. That's all I can say. Thank you. And by God's grace, as we take time, a few minutes, to, to look back and, and, and to thank the Lord, we need to be looking forward, don't we? Because uh, we, we celebrate the memories, but we anticipate the victories. And that's what we do. We look forward for what God has in store and as I promise you that as, as long as the Lord gives me breath and uh, keeps me here as your pastor, it will be my honor to serve with you. And by his grace, I'll, I will give my very, very best. Uh, and so I, I thank you for the years and thank you for what God has in store. And let's press on, right? Press on uh, because it's too soon to retire, right? Retirement for us is out of this world. <laughs> and uh, let's keep on serving together. Well, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that is the message for the day, even though uh, some sneaky things were done before I got up here. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we are 
coming to a close of a series that we've called Refocused, Refocused. And so we want to turn to this passage. And if you use the Bible provided for you there in the seat back, you'll find that on page 952, 952. God's brought us through an amazing year. God has done great things here over this last year. The planning of the church of Emmanuel Church have been so significant as he has sent out people on mission from our church and blessing that start. And we know he was going to continue to do that. I know he's going to continue uh, letting us be a, a sending church. You know, it's so important to remember that as a church, uh, we're, not, we're not to be uh, a cruise ship. We're not to be a cruise ship. We're to be an aircraft carrier. Uh, not just having a good time as we float along the seas, though we enjoy our fellowship, but we are to be about launching people forth on their journey with Christ and sending people out in the ministries that God has given to them. And we want to continue to be that kind of church, to be a church whether we are sending out people in mass as in the church plant, or whether people are being sent out on their individual journeys, we are all being sent out. We are all sent on mission. And I want us to have that as our focus this morning, because you see, I really believe that as we talk about being refocused, it is the mission itself that helps us to stay in focus. It's being mindful of our lives on mission that helps us focus all the other aspects of our life. This week I read something interesting. I don't know if you caught it. It was, it was in the news. Something very significant happened in Barrow, Alaska. You know what happened on Thursday in Barrow, Alaska? The sun went down. The sun went down. They had sunset in Barrow, Alaska. You say, well, Sam, that's, that's not really that uh, uh, earth-shattering. Well, no, but it's significant because you know something about Barrow, Alaska? The sun set on Thursday, and it will not rise again until January 22nd. The northernmost city in the United States, Barrow, Alaska, had sunset on Thursday, and the sun will not rise above the horizon for the next 65 days. Now, can you imagine that? <laughs> I don't really want to imagine that. Uh, 65 days of living really in twilight. It's not that it's completely dark, but it's, it's just a twilight. 65 days where things not clear, 65 days outside, needing a flashlight in the middle of the day, 65 days of things not quite being in focus. But as I read that article this week, I thought, you know, if we're not careful, it's possible for us as believers to live 365 days in twilight. 
365 days where we're not really living in the light. Year-round living in twilight, 365 days, it's possible to live every day of your life in twilight, living without clarity, living without focus. And so the question I want us to think about as we come to the close of this series, Refocus, what changes a life of twilight into a life of clarity? What is it that changes a life of twilight into a life of clarity? Well, I believe to a great extent it is the recognition that life is a mission. That life is a mission. Life is not just taking a hike in the woods. That happened a few months ago to Spencer and Cleo. Spencer and Cleo, a young couple, and they decided to go on a hike, and they went on a hike in the Wasatch Mountains of Utah. And while they were on this hike, they heard a very soft cry from the ravine below them off the trail. And they climbed down 700 feet. And at the bottom of that ravine, they found Heather, a 24-year-old girl who, the, who two nights before had careened over the guardrail and her car had tumbled down 700 feet. Miraculously, she survived. She was still alive but unable to get out of the car in which she was pinned and so she had been calling for help for nearly 48 hours and Spencer and Cleo heard that and guess what in a moment of time for Spencer and Cleo that hike in the woods turned into a rescue mission they weren't taking a hike anymore they were on a mission and they were able to reach the authorities and Teams came down there and were able to rescue Heather, take into to the hospital, and she made a full recovery. But Spencer and Cleo, that young couple, who were just taking a hike, had their lives totally changed to a mission, a mission of rescue refocused by the mission. That's what can happen to us when we recognize that we're not just taking a hike, but we're on a mission. Now for me, the great example of the, in the New Testament of a person whose life was refocused, we could say by mission, is the Apostle Paul. And I've asked you to turn to this passage because I, I want us to take a few moments just to see how Paul himself, a devoted follower of Christ, needed to have a refocus and to be refocused by the mission. You see, Paul had come to Macedonia, modern-day Greece. You remember the story. He'd come because he'd seen a vision, the vision of the man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And he and his assistant Silas and also Luke 
made the journey over to the land of Greece, and they came on mission, and they ran smack into hard reality. In Philippi, they were arrested, thrown in jail, beaten. And God, you remember, sent into their singing of songs a real rock concert <laughs> and freed them. But it was a difficult situation. They left Philippi. They went to Thessalonica. They were there just three weeks and a riot broke out. They tried to kill Paul. They had to get him out of town. He went just a little further to Berea. Things seemed to be going in Berea to, until the gang in Thessalonica found out where Paul was and they came and stirred up another riot. And so they had to rescue Paul from that. He made his way to Athens and there in Athens he, he shared the gospel at that cultural center but what he received was just ridicule for the most part and yes, some that came to know the Lord but it was a very difficult time and so he made his way to Corinth and he tells us by his own account that he came to Corinth really a discouraged man a discouraged preacher a, a discouraged missionary this this vision thing had turned out to be pretty tough but soon he was refocused by what began to happen in Corinth what God began to show him. And he talks about how he was refocused here. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul describes this, this mission that refocused his life. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and the power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Now here Paul is describing a refocus that came to him, a, a determination that he made that as he would come, he would come on this mission with a real clarity of focus. And, and notice, he says that he came there on this, what we could call a life-guiding mission. He, he, was, he was determined to have his life guided by the mission while he was there in Corinth. And you see that because he entered into this city which really, really was characterized in all of Greece, in a sense, the Greek world was characterized by this, a culture of personality. It was a culture of personality. You see, back in the Greek culture of that day, they really admired that which was unique, that which was dynamic and persuasive and flamboyant, original, unpredictable, even a little satirical. 
Does that sound familiar to you at all? Sounds like a recent election. And, and Paul had pressure on him to be like that. He knew what the people wanted. They wanted him to be persuasive and flamboyant and unique and dynamic and original and unpredictable and have a little bit of an edge to him. That's what people wanted. And so he was pressured to give in to that culture. And sadly, as he's writing this letter, Paul sees that kind of culture in the church already at Corinth. Did you... If you know anything about this letter, he's, he's writing because he wants to challenge a church that they no longer give in to the personality culture of the day. Look back at chapter 1. Look at verse 10. Would you look at verse 10 in chapter 1? Turn in your Bibles there. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is verse 10, chapter 1. That all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. That you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is a, there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, and here's the personality culture. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas or Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, Paul addresses that personality culture, and he says, quite frankly, he says to them, Corinthians, you need to understand something. It's not about you. The mission really isn't about you. It's not about me either. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Peter. It's about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So that's what it's about. We need to refocus on that mission. Make Christ your mission. And so if you look back now at chapter 2, that's exactly what Paul said that he decided he would do. Did you notice this? Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 1. We just read it, but look at it again. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided, mark that word, I decided. It means I made a deliberate determination to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I made a deliberate decision that the focus that I was going to bring to you in that city was to put the spotlight on one person and that spotlight would not be on me. That spotlight would be on Jesus Christ. Said so that was my determination. To shine Christ in your midst. I remember once the story about a little boy who was in church. He would sit back in this church with his, his mom. And it was an older, more traditional building. Had a big stained glass back here of Jesus. 
And Jesus in the stained glass has his arms open like this. And the boy loved to look at that stained glass. And Jesus standing there. One day they had a guest speaker. And the guest speaker was a rather large man. And the little boy said to his mother, Mommy, when that man speaks, I can't see Jesus. <laughs> when that man speaks, I can't see Jesus. Hey, there's a, there's a way to refocus. Are you standing in the way of Jesus? Is there any situation or relationship where you may be blocking Jesus from shining through? It might not be evil. It might be not your intent is to do that. But by putting yourself forward, you're putting yourself in front of Jesus. And Paul determined he wasn't going to do that. He said, it's not going to be about me. It's going to be about a person, Jesus Christ. And notice, not just the person of Christ, he was going to put the focus on the passion of Christ. The passion of Christ. Notice what he said. I determined, verse 2, not to know anything about you except Jesus Christ and him. What's the next word? Crucified. That's the word of his passion. That means the word of his suffering. He was not going to focus on the moral example of Jesus. He was not going to focus on the teaching example of Jesus, as great as they were. You know, it was amazing to me in the recent election that we had both parties and both lead candidates and all kinds of candidates were constantly referring to Jesus. And they would refer to Jesus in his moral example. They refer to Jesus perhaps in his teaching example. But I listened in vain for some candidate to talk about Jesus in his example of the suffering of death for sinners. You see, that's not a politically correct message. But friends, don't we know this? It's an eternally correct message. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Paul put the message on the suffering of Christ. That Christ died for our sins. That is the message of his mission. That's our message if we're on his mission. Christ. Christ alone. And his suffering. And his glory. Just a couple weeks, we're going to start the season of Advent. Do you remember what the angel said to Mary? What the angel told Joseph? Make sure you call his name what? Jesus, because he will do what? He will save his people from their sin. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus' mission is a mission of salvation. And his mission needs to be our mission. 
And I want you to notice here, that's what Jesus' mission was about, and that's what Paul's mission was about. And he said, church, I want you to refocus on this. The mission of Jesus should be your mission, a life-changing mission. A life-changing mission. We need to refocus as a church on a life-changing mission. We need to keep that focus. A few months ago, I was in a staff meeting with our team here, and we were having a staff planning time and, and to do a little uh, teaching, or you could say coaching. I had a, a, a presentation about a football field. And I, and I walked them through a scenario where the Vols are, are going down the field and they're, they're, the team's going forward, the team scores a touchdown and when the Vols score the touchdown, the scoreboard there in Neyland Stadium says one to nothing. The Vols score first, they get a touchdown and the scoreboard says one to nothing. And I asked the staff, I said, hey, what, what's the problem with that? And someone said, uh, we're not playing football. <laughs> because if it's football and the ball score the first, it's not one to nothing, it's six to nothing. You see, the, the scoreboard, the scoreboard reveals what game is being played. What's our scoreboard? What's our scoreboard? The scoreboard of West Park Baptist Church is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see them develop as disciples who love God, love people, and impact the world. That's our scoreboard. And we are effective as that is the way we keep score. Lives being changed. I wonder, what's your scorecard? What's your scoreboard? How do you know you're winning? How do you know that you really are fulfilling the purpose for which you're on this planet? How do you keep score? What's your scorecard? If the scorecard that you're keeping, my friend, is not focused on you being a part of changing lives, if the scorecard of your life is not really about how your life through Christ is impacting others, I want to tell you in all love and humility, but I will tell you firmly, you're playing the wrong game. If your life is not about seeing people changed, by the gospel of Jesus, you're living the wrong game and you're losing the game. Most powerful moment I had this week. I was down at a coffee shop near here. I was talking to a young man who is considering going into the ministry. And I remember... I guess nearly 20 years ago when he was in the ICU at Children's Hospital. And the doctors didn't think he was going to make it. He was so sick. Had so many problems. 
And while he was in that hospital, his father tragically died. And I remember going to the hospital, visiting the mother just devastated and anguish over her husband and anguish over her little boy. And up here, as we were praying, I reached out my hand and he took me by the hand and we began to pray. And in a moment, I remembered when I had my hand in that little bassinet at Children's Hospital, that little baby boy by his hand took my finger and I prayed over him and prayed over his mother and his family. And as we were praying there about him going into the ministry, it just hit me. I started choking up right there and I was thinking, this is it. This is what Jesus is about. Changing lives, changing destiny, giving beauty for ashes. Taking ones who people have given up on in many different ways. Rescuing them. Lives changed. Do you have a ministry of life change? You know, you can be a part of that. You may be saying, how can I be a ministry of life change? Because, you know, it's not about us. I, I want you to know something. I, I tell you, on this day when you honor me for these, for these 30 years, I have never once had in my ability the ability to change a life. I have never had that. I will tell you honestly, from the day one till this very day, I have never felt up to the task. I am being totally honest with you. Because I do not possess the ability to change a life. But I know who does. And it's the power of God I want you to see this in, in, in chapter one. Look at chapter one. What was Paul relying on? What was he relying on to change lives? He says, the, verse 18 in chapter one, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Folly. It's, it's considered folly, but it's the power of God. Now drop down, look down at verse 22. He says, and this is his audience in Corinth, the, the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, the Jews are demanding signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It is, it is a stumbling block to the Jews. That, that word stumbling block there, listen, scandalon. Scandalon. We get our word, word scandalous from it. It's scandalous to tell Jewish people that their Messiah has been crucified by the Romans. That's scandalous. And he says, and to the Greeks, it, it is folly. And the word folly there is moronos. We get our word moronic from it. It's moronic to tell these cultured Greek people that a dead Jewish man got up. And that he is the Lord who has come among us. And he has died and resurrected. That is moronic. But why does he say it is? Notice he says it is the power of God. Note that. It's the power of God. 
And then notice Paul refocused in chapter, when he's refocusing in chapter 2, he says in verses 3 and 5, look back at our text, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit. Notice that word demonstration. That's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Do you know what it means? It means something so trustworthy it can be put into court as evidence. He says, but I came to you in the evidence of the Spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, did you notice that? Three times. What did he say? Chapter 1, verse number 18, the power of God. Chapter 1, verse 24, the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 5, the power of God. He said, it's not in me, it's the power of God. That word there is dunamis. We get our word dynamite from it. But it, it's a word that doesn't mean explosive power. It means power that is inherent. It means that the power is in the message. This is where I'm going, folks. You can be involved in changing lives because the power is not in you. The power is in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's not the messenger, it is the message. That's what the power is. And out of that power, the Lord uses us to see radically changed lives. Radically changed lives. I want you to turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just for a moment. I know I'm going long, and I'm going to ask one of our ushers. I appreciate the fellowships going out there in the Welcome Center, but they're bugging me just a little bit, okay? So... <laughs> and it's my anniversary. I don't want to be bugged, okay? But I'm try, trying to be nice, even on this special day. Chapter 6. Look at what the gospel does. Look at what the gospel does. Not you, not me. Verse 9. Nor do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now he's talking about sin. And he says these sins will disinherit a person from obtaining the kingdom of God. It will Keep them from the kingdom of God. He's talking about sins. And he's not saying that a Christian can't commit these sins. Because a Christian can commit any of these sins. But he's talking about the practice. The dominion of these sins. And notice what he says. This is what's so beautiful. And if you ever mark your Bible. You ought to mark one word. And such were... Some of you. That, that word, were, is past tense. You know what that means? It means you were this, but you're not anymore. Because you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You used to be this, but you're not now. Folks, listen. 
The gospel is not about people in recovery. The gospel, the good news is you don't have to go into a time of recovery. You will be recovering from, yes, your former life, but the truth of the gospel is you're redeemed, you're changed, you're made new. (laughs) You're not who you used to be. I love what I heard one preacher say one time. He said, I'm not all I ought to be. That's right. But thank God I'm not what I used to be and I'm not what I'm going to be. (laughs) You were, but you're not now. My point is we can be used with that kind of ministry. Life-changing ministry. Folks, I want to tell you, I see a room and I see people regularly here that are testimonies of the life-changing power of Christ. Can anybody say amen to that? Say, yes, I know. It is, it's wonderful to see God at work. I encourage you to come Friday night, December 2nd, or Sunday night, December 4th, to Christmas at West Park. You're going to hear some of the most beautiful Christmas music you've ever heard, but you're also going to hear some testimonies of transformed lives. And it will be a true celebration for you. Well, my friend, the last thing I've got to say, and if I had another sermon in the series, I'd save it to next week, but I've got to save this because we're coming to this close. All I'd share with you is that when you are on mission, you're you're refueled by this mission And it gives you a motivation, a life motivation. This mission of Christ is a fuel for a lifetime. And Paul says, this is what I'm willing to do because I'm on mission. This is what I'm willing to do. Chapter 9, he talks about his rights and his liberty. You read verses 1 through 18. When you have time, I encourage you. Paul's talking about his rights and his freedoms as an apostle. But notice what he did with those rights and freedoms. He surrendered them. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those who are under the law, that is, Jewish people living under that law of Moses, I became one as under the law, though not being under the, myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are outside the law, he's talking about the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, that is to the spiritually weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, out of the reality of the gospel in my heart. I do this so that other people might share the blessings of the gospel with me. Now friend, notice he was a free man. And in that freedom, he surrendered his rights in order to serve others. He surrendered his rights 
to sympathize with others, to identify with the weak and with the Jews and with the Gentiles. He surrendered his rights. And he did this out of the gospel. This is what motivated him, the love of Christ for him. Now, friends, I want to ask you this morning, are you free? Are you a slave of Jesus? There was a man who wasn't a very good man in terms of being able with a great ability to read or write, but he wanted to be a witness. And you know what he used to do? He used to walk up and down the city streets and he'd wear one of those advertising jackets, you know, with a billboard on the front and the billboard on the back. And here's what it would say on the front. He would say, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And then on the back it said, whose slave are you? See, to be free is to be a slave of Jesus because Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, what? You really will be free. Are you free? Are you willing to surrender? I would just ask you this morning, are you willing to surrender your security? Are you willing to set aside your scorecard and say, I'll let the mission of Jesus be my scorecard? Are you willing to release control? Are you willing to say, Lord, I'll lay aside my rights and privileges. I will follow you, Jesus. And there's a price for that because if we're going to follow Jesus, we can't stay where we are. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to say, Lord, I will follow you. I'm on mission for you. My life is your mission. Lord, you are my mission. And you are my vision. And friends, isn't it true? That's a great way to live, right? That's a great focus. When Jesus is your mission and your vision. Now let's stand and I just want us to sing our prayer to the Lord. I thank you for letting me go over since Doug got into some of my time. <laughs> but for Biltmore, I'm willing to sacrifice. <laughs> but hey, let's sing to the Lord. Be thou my vision. I surrender, you lead. You're my vision. I will go. I will follow you, Christ. Let's sing this again.